2003, Deva Pager found that there are stronger employment discriminations against blacks than white films. Walk in the spot in his lights, cameras, action. Well executed, I'm the main attraction. Engaging vibes is where I wanna be. Enchanting light to smiles is all you see. <laughs> so I ain't thinking about the next one. Snapping pics, they be loving my fashion. Great drinks, great friends, and it's flowing well. It's a perfect event. Shout out, Riel. A Riel's Events Podcast. We are business podcasts all about elevating boring events to enchanting engagements for your nonprofit organization, small business, or corporation. I'm your host, Riel Jones. I am so excited to talk to you about today's topic, an event series that is our own, something that we've been working on for a very long time. And before we delve into that and the specifics of the event series, I first want to talk to you about creating event series for a purpose, solving a problem with your events and having your events be a solution. We've talked about this before, uh, finding the purpose of your events. So for me, I found that a problem that I saw a lot, whether it was in different works places that I was a part of or working with certain um, organizations of the past. And that's workforce discrimination, workforce racism, and um, prejudice. This is a topic that is very hard for a lot of people to talk about, to um, address, or to even really hear the facts about. So instead of bringing just an opinions to this topic of how I feel or just my experiences alone, which I will talk about my experiences throughout this uh, particular podcast so that it can help with contextualizing why I personally wanted to create this event series, but also how some of the um, statistics also played true to my own experiences working at a lot of different places. Um, one of the things that I wanted to be very mindful as I prepared for this episode was to provide a lot of um, context and statistics throughout histories as well as theories that will help us understand what does workplace discrimination mean, what does it look like, and how have we either encountered it or perhaps even added to it um, unknowingly. I don't want this to be a podcast episode where it feels like we're blaming a certain group or blaming certain people. Instead, I want it to be more of um, both educational and informational as well as providing a cohesive background to the topic. I want to give a little bit of perspective about who I am and my positionality as we go into this topic. I think... Um, as a researcher, as a sociologist, it's really important for us to talk about who we are before we delve into topics. I know I'm an event planner now, but my um, training has been in um, political science and sociology. And so in both fields, I did a lot of research. Um, and I think that it, it's uber important to to mention um, the writers, the uh, 
the speakers, the researchers position. I am I am African American. Originally, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, or right outside of it, Decatur, where it's greater. It's a predominantly African-American community. Growing up, we were the second wealthiest black community in America, so um, very much a middle-class area, Stone Mountain, Lithonia, Decatur. Um, and growing up, really, you saw black um, people hold all positions. So, yes, a lot of people, like my mother... Um, worked downtown corporate America back then, Bell South, and um, it became AT&T and, or other places like Coca-Cola. But I also saw a lot of um, African-American leaders um, that were heads of our schools, or who owned banks, who had law firms all across, um, or newspapers, and etc. So very much self sustaining black community where really a lot of people could go their whole lives and never inter interact or encounter other races. So um, on that note alone, I think that it's maybe perhaps not as unique as mainstream America would paint the picture or mainstream media would paint the picture to be, but um, for a predominantly black area, it wasn't um, crime-led or this horrific urban setting that a lot of times we read about or that's painted um, throughout the media. Also, I think that an important fact about me is that education has been a very important part of my family history. So my grandmother, she was born in 1932. She was a sharecropper who really didn't get paid for that. But her mother pushed her into focusing on education education being the the key even though her mom my great-grandmother had perhaps a fifth grade education um, and that might be being a little bit generous out of love my grandmother became a professor in many places she was the first um, black teacher professor or black female professor and she married my grandfather who was a high school math teacher the two of them had one child my mother who they instilled the importance of education onto, and she went to a boarding school and then MIT. She had one child, me, and growing up, once she left corporate America, she decided to start a tutoring service in Decatur, and it was primarily to help African-American students improve their grades, but also achieve any academic goals that they had. So whether they wanted to go to Morehouse down the street or to Harvard up north, they were in the position to do so. Growing up in her tutoring service, I found a deep love for education, but also the power of taking time with people and explaining things in different ways so that they can understand it and the trust that is shared when you do that. I ended up going to Wellesley College, which is the number four college in America, number one women's college. Um, we're known for having a lot of prestigious women, so like Hillary Clinton, Madden Albright, so that's two to three female secretaries of state. We had the last Empress of China, um, we had a Princess of Thailand, a lot of royalty basically over the years. The school of the 0.5%, I definitely did not belong anywhere near that, that, <laughs> that area, but again, um, I think talking about positionality, I have been privileged in a lot of ways. So even um, applying to school, having a mother, 
yes, African-American, but having a mother who went to MIT very much set me apart from all the other students. And then finally, after graduating Wellesley, I've gotten a lot of um, privilege from at first being a student at Wellesley and now an alum of Wellesley College because it does have such a strong reputation. And that's very great. But it's also shown me a lot of ways of the education is used to try to distinguish me being a regular African-American person from being someone that you should respect and you should, you should take seriously. And um, having this degree and, and particularly going to this college, not just any four-year college, not just any selective college, but this college in particular, um, validating who I am as a, a educated person, as someone who has more a highbrow type of class, I guess, versus just being quote unquote of the people or being able to be around certain influencers. Now on the flip side of that, Wellesley is not a place where you are supposed to work. And I actually throughout my Wellesley career held two or three jobs. I put myself through college. And a lot of those jobs, I was a manager of like a plastic surgeon office manager, a plastic surgeon office. I was a bakery manager. So I was a manager a lot of different places. And then I also nannied for a lot of political leaders or um, very senior level corporate executives. That gave me some privilege, but on the other hand, because of my age, once I graduated from college, once people see that you're a recent college graduate, in a lot of ways, they don't take that work experience as seriously as if I never went to college. And so that's also a balancing act of, yes, I went to this great school and I recently graduated, but my very much real work experience didn't start with my graduation date, um, it started before then. Now I say all of this, not just to talk about myself, not to brag about myself or, or my family, but more so to put into reality the things that I was taught and um, the things that I benefit from that allows me to be as successful as I am. And, and that does include the myth of if you're an African-American person and you get enough education and the right type of education, then all the doors will open for you. I recently was on the Minority Trailblazers podcast and I talked about going through phases of things not working out and it being very difficult to get a job after Wellesley, um, despite my, my work experience and despite having really great recommendations and people who loved working with me and being very just disheartened like by really finding out that it was a myth of chasing the education and the education alone will help you secure X, Y, and Z. And so black folks who are still uh, impoverished or who have not excelled it's really their fault because they didn't focus on school enough or they didn't care enough about school. And and finding out firsthand that that's not the case, um, that there's a lot of other things that are working um, in place. And it made me challenge my idea 
that I picked up perhaps through the different prep schools I was at or talking to friends. So now as an adult and as someone who um, is more solution oriented than just identifying problems or being upset with the problems, I want to know what is those, what are those forces out there? You know, what is it that really holds a lot of African-Americans back from being able to achieve the same success their coworkers or peers are. I started really looking into defining what are the other things out there, other forces, uh, perceptions, how to navigate them, and also how common are these experiences for other people and how do how are they impacted by it. I know for myself, when I started dealing with workplace discrimination and um, biases, it had a huge negative impact in the fact that I didn't really have anyone to share a lot of those experiences with who got it or who empathized or who also understood that what I was going through was a bigger phenomenon than just um, me kind of giving hearsay or whatnot. And I, I have a couple of definitions that I want to start off with. If you're in our event group that I will talk about later in the episode, all of these all the things that I'm referencing is already on the special website for that group. Workplace discrimination is a condition when individuals and organizations' behavior is unreasonable and it impairs the capabilities of the group or individuals working with them and the capabilities of the organization as a whole. Bassman's 1992 paper, Abuse of Workplace Behavior Involves Verbal Abuse. Disrespecting um, the individual verbally, um, this can be either alone or in front of other people. Being overworked, um, piling on more work than the person should have or that other people in that position have. Harassment, threatening that person, uh, and intimidation, preventing access to opportunities. This can be promotions, this can be trainings, this can be access to other jobs, stealing the credit for their work, destructive behavior, downgrading or downplaying the employee's capabilities. This topic has become very popular and been pushed back into popular culture main focus with albums like Jay-Z's 444 and songs like the OJ story and the documentaries that go along with the title album. The documentaries or the first one showcases different African-American males who speak about their experience both in the workforce as well as in um, prestigious educational institutions where they realized that while they had a position or while they were technically a part of a bigger organization or institution, they didn't have all the same benefits as their white peers. One person talks about the fact that he was in law school at a prestigious school and he thought that getting in was the main thing that would launch his success and that the main value from the school came from the courses and going to classes and being a good student, etc. What he found out later on in his academic career at this college was that there were other benefits that white students received, including having access to job opportunities in formal groups that helped prepare them or place them in positions where they could 
receive uh, really great employment opportunities after college, etc. This is not something new. Um, 1971, Hill wrote, discrimination on the basis of race includes harassment, denial of access to employment opportunities, underestimation of others, and unfair treatment. Let's remind ourselves that there are no biological or genetic differences amongst races. Um, however, there does exist a wide gap between the lifestyles of white Americans and black Americans, which is due to the difference in opportunity in education and employment. Black women in particular encounter both sexual and racial harassment in the workplace, which includes verbal abuse, epithets, threats, slurs, derogatory comments, and unwelcome remarks. This compels many to leave workplace cultures that they perceive to be negative or oppressive, which in return can limit um, their economic, political, and social um, opportunities and abilities because they no longer have these positions, the power, the credibility behind them, um, and also perhaps leaving different workforces can become a blight on their per career versus even if it's in response to their treatment, the, the way that they were being treated at a job or workplace. So in 2011, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said that 3.8% of black Americans were self-employed versus 7.2% of white Americans and 5.8% of Latinos. Working college graduates, 26.5% African American, 36.8% white, and 16.7% Latino. Weekly medium income for men, for black men, was $653. For Hispanic men, $571, and white men, $856. Weekly medium income for black women was $595, Latinas, $518. When the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, in 2011, did a report on um, upper-level positions, we saw that in the leadership slash management roles, we're looking at mid to senior level executives. Number one, white men. They had 529,971 senior leadership executives. White women, they had 205,559 senior leader executives. Asian men had 26,060 executive. Hispanic men are number four with 20,000. 284 senior executives. Black men are five with 12,572. Black women are number six with 11,627 senior leaders. And to place that in comparison to white women, black women had 11,627 senior executives and white women had 205,559. Hispanic women had 10,098 senior executives, and Asian women were number eight with 9,276. According to diversityinc.com, in 2013, there were only six black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, accounting for 1.2% of Fortune 500 CEO population. Looking at the first and mid-level managers, white men were number one, White 
women were number two. Hispanic men were number three. Asian men were number four. Black men were number five. Black women were number six. Hispanic women were number seven. And Asian women were number eight. Asian women had 90,385 first and mid-level managers compared to white men who had 2,220,998. Um, black women had 152,692 first and mid-level manager positions compared to white women who had 1,336,000. 854. White men employed as executive senior level was 88.6% of the total executive. Black female and males at this level only reached 2.9%. There can be employment process bias, which is part of interpersonal discrimination, which is a negative attitude towards African Americans as a group. Um, versus institutional discrimination, which is the organized policies, which restricts access and opportunities to African-American people. So the interpersonal one is more that I feel that African-Americans are lazier or they don't know how to speak proper English. And so I personally won't give them an approval to be hired versus institutional discrimination has policies that actively prevent. For instance, I only want to get people who have a already established network of C-suite executives, which might directly limit the number of minorities just simply based off of accessibility. A firm may use codes to cover their faulty hiring practices. One that I found very interesting came from a 1994 article written by Ford that said one code was talk to Maria, which indicates a preference for Hispanics, Latinas, or no POC, person of color, or no T, capital T, which meant no black. And I thought that that was also interesting because now when we use person of color, we tend to sweep in every minority. A new job at workplace may be filled by the recommendation of a friend or a person of the same race. Hidden within this practice are negative images associated with African-American young men and women, which pushes a preference to just hire within that person's established community versus giving an opportunity to an, a regular applicant. There are organizations where African-Americans are hired for low positions and low paying roles irrespective of their qualifications or work experience at higher positions. A popular theory that was, I believe, introduced in 1970. I know Barry and Bluestone wrote about it in 1970 and then Michael Pierre in 1975 wrote about this and it continues to be referenced throughout. It's a dual market theory where you have primary and secondary jobs. The primary jobs consist of high paying positions with high wages, good work conditions, and better job stability. They also have uh, higher chances of work advancement, while you have secondary jobs that are less desirable, where wages are low, where conditions are harsh and poor, and a lot of times can have negative impacts on your health. They are not stable, and many times these jobs do not have access to health care or retirement plans. Etc. In 1988, 50% of African Americans were in 
secondary job. And only 4% were in managerial positions. African Americans in privileged occupations, difficulties that they experience include they might not have the same opportunities for promotion and growth, or they have increasing administrative roles. So they have an increased amount of workload placed on them without promotion or an increase in pay. That's why you'll see a lot of people who've had strong careers stay in the same position for five, six, seven plus years without any movement, while some of their white colleagues who might have started underneath them or who might have been trained by them are able to move up. You have high barriers for upward mobility in service workers, skilled laborers, unskilled laborers, as compared to managers and and professionals. So it's even harder if you come in as a secondary job to experience job upward mobility. And African-American women are concentrated primarily in sector occupations such as clerks, receptionists, and secretaries, while African-American men are concentrated more as dock workers, truck drivers, construction workers, janitors. Another theory around workforce discrimination includes minority vulnerability thesis, which was written first in, say, 2000 by Wilson in 2005 by Wilson and McBriar, and it talks about employees in work settings making layoff decisions, which reinforce the patterns of racial exclusion. So the race-based patterns of layoff are based on modern racial patterns of prejudice, which can be structural, racial, and institutional in nature, where African Americans typically are the first to be fired or laid off. That black workers are laid off and have longer durations of unemployment than white workers. Black workers have two times as many spells of unemployment as white, and blacks are two times as likely to have 10 or more unemployment spells during their prime work years. His ultimate, when we, t- when we looked at the great our great recession and it was interesting because when I was in high school, we were talking about the start of the impact on the top 10%. I went to one of the top two prep schools in Atlanta and it was very much made up of the top 10%. For me, it was very interesting because years before the Great Recession was declared, black business owners and black professionals already started seeing tightening around their as access to credit, access to loans, being cut off way before it affected mainstream America. So you see the same thing with layoffs. Minorities are more vulnerable. So when we see economic changes happening, minorities are the first to be hit, taking most of the blow in trying to have the softer blow for white Americans. Another theory around workforce discrimination is the taste-based model where you have actors predicting that people of a certain group would not want to interact with other people so not having minorities interact with clients because the clients might not be ready for a minority to handle their case and then you have the informational based model where employees discriminate against particular groups the human capital investment we might hire someone who's african-american but we won't train them or give them the same opportunity to learn the way that we really do it, or how to improve their skills in management or sales, etc. And as a result of not really training them and investing in building that employee, they're going to underperform. And because they underperform, it reinforces our idea that they aren't as good of workers. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling thing. And basically because you didn't really give them enough information and help. 
And then, of course, we have the unconscious bias theory, which right now is one of the most prevalent ideals. And I think because we believe ourselves to be in a post-racial climate, that we prefer believing that discrimination is mostly based off of an unconscious bias, where an employee or person associates a name or characteristic with a particular group, even though they might not consciously know that they're doing it. So you might have a name, Lakeisha, and because her name is Lakeisha, you think, oh, she must have, she must be a baby mama, and and in such, she's going to have drama, she's not going to know how to write a memo, she's not going to know how to do an email, And then you discard her application because you saw her name and that name triggered other things in your mind. And it might not be you consciously thinking, I don't like black people, so I'm not going to hire black people. So we covered the main theories around workforce discrimination, how it happens, why it happens, and what does it look like in America. Now, to combat combat workforce discrimination, affirmative action was introduced. But first, affirmative action was actually introduced in 1935 with National Labor Relations Act. This was the first federal document to use the term affirmative action to correct unfair labor practices. At the end of World War II, it was dismantled. Unlike in today's uh, connotation of affirmative action, it was more so to protect positions for white Americans, um, both in employment and educational institutions and you also had around this time introduction of quotas because there was an influx of Jewish students who were attending Ivy League colleges and it was perceived that they were taking spots from white Americans and because of such institutions decided that they were going to put quotas on how many Jewish students were going to be allowed a part of it so that white Americans still had the primary um access to the jobs and to the academic spot. Later on, the idea of affirmative action was introduced greatly because of the civil rights movement. In 1961, John F. Kennedy introduced the Equal Opportunity Act to prevent discrimination against employees based on their color, race, creed, or nationality, called Affirmative Action, which aimed to create equality in employment. Two years later, you have the Equal Pay Act of 1963. In 1964, you have the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which expand upon the affirmative action principle. No person based on race or creed can be excluded, denied the benefits, or subject to discrimination in activities related to federal financial assistance. In 1972, the Equal Pay Act was upgraded uh, to cover executives, professional workers, and administrators. The act prohibits sexual discrimination in wages and fringe benefits, which is geared to help white women workers. In 1972, Title VII was amended to ban all forms of discrimination in employment. It was mainly aimed to address the issues of African Americans faced with denied employment. And this is 1972, 11 years after John F. Kennedy's Equal Opportunity Act, which means it still was not fixed. In 1972, Title IX of educational amendments were brought in. So you had the gender against gender discrimination. You had educational amendments were introduced for women workers who were vulnerable to complete their education. It was created to prohibit sexual discrimination in educational institutions that receive funding. It was later modified to promote equal opportunity in education 
irresponsive of community groups and race, which means when it was first introduced, it was introduced to help white women students receive their higher level education. And later on, it was expanded to help people of color. Then you had the executive order 11246 and promoted non-discriminatory practices in employment. In 1981, because this still was not solved, you had the USC section 1981, which legal equitable relief to sufferers of racial discrimination. So now you could start suing for discrimination. In 1983, you had the continuation of this and mainly it was for U.S. government contractors to um, prevent discrimination in their hiring practices. In 1993, you have the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which is usually referred to the UNDHR, which amongst the many things that it talks about, it does talk about the employment and favorable work environments. So the rights as in a worker to have good work conditions, the right to standard living, to restrict employment discrimination. Last, in 1993, you have the creation of the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a federal law commission to prevent workforce discrimination and uphold the laws from before. However, there are more cases than the commission has funds to process and combat or to even help um, absolve and and provide solutions. So despite our long history of trying to combat workforce discrimination, it it has still been very prevalent in a lot of ways. So for some of you all listening, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, we've seen that there's only 3% African-Americans in senior level positions. We understand that African-Americans deal with discrimination within a lot of different workforces, or they're pushed to secondary jobs versus primary jobs, even when they have college degrees. So... Why hasn't affirmative action been more helpful? We hear conflicting messages from even people like the Justice Antonin Scalia who asserted that affirmative action has harmed African American students by putting them in elite institutions that are not that they are not prepared for. However, study after study after study shows that there's simply no evidence for this at all. Or, you know, isn't affirmative action the thing that's supposed to save it all? And actually, study after study show that white women have benefit the most of affirmative action versus black Americans, the group that really pushed through the civil rights movement to have their needs addressed. However, white women who oppose affirmative action is very common. As recent as the University of Texas versus Abigail Fisher, we see that Abigail Fisher was denied access to her dream school, the University of Texas. She had an 1180 on her SAT and a GPA of 3.59. It was her assumption that the highly competitive school denied her based off her race and allowed people who were less qualified to be a part of the student body because their policy was to include racial backgrounds in the application review process. However, what they found the year that Fisher was denied one black student, four Latinos, and 42 white students with lower scores than Fisher were accepted. Let me repeat that. Only one black student, only four Latinos with lower scores than Fisher were accepted, and 42 white students with lower 
scores than Fisher were accepted. Conversely, 168 African Americans and Latinos with better scores than Fisher were denied. In popular mainstream media, there's a idea that affirmative action primarily harms white Americans, which is completely false. According to a Columbia University professor in the Michigan Law Review, she wrote, the primary benefactors of affirmative action has been Euro-American women. In 1995, a report by the California Senate Government Organization Committee found that white women held a majority of managerial jobs, 57,200, compared to 10,500 African-American women, 19,000 Latinas, and 24,000 Asian women. In 2015, a disproportionate representation of white women business owners set off concerns in the state of New York. And the officials there believe that they will not be able to bridge the racial gaps amongst public contractors. So again, white women as recent as 2015 were able to gain so many public contracts that the state of New York was concerned that they would not be able to bridge the gap between the white women and other minorities, male and female. Now, diversity efforts in technology and publishing has overwhelmingly increased the presence of white women and has not greatly impacted the presence of people of color. So the new frontiers of affirmative action helping um, increase quote-unquote diversity and in this diversity is white women entering the workforce are now in technology and publishing. A sociology study in 2009 shows that white applicants are three times more likely to be admitted to selective schools than Asian applicants with the same academic records. However, there have not been any affirmative action complaints by white Americans. And in 2013, surveys found that white adults in California de-emphasized the importance of test scores when Asian Americans who have the same test scores are denied access and over white students who have lower test scores. So we see kind of a bias of when we think that affirmative action should matter and who should it benefit. Which brings me to a great article um, and points that I read doing my research for this podcast. And it comes from Understanding Prejudice and Discrimination. It was in the Journal of Social Issues and it's published by McGraw-Hill. It's 10 myths about affirmative action and I wrote down 7 of them. The first myth is that only way to create a colorblind society is to adopt colorblind policies. Well, in fact, even back in 1991... Scrozzi wrote that all else being equal, colorblind scenarios tend to protect white workers and students against job layoffs because senior employees are usually white, but more importantly that colorblind college admissions favor white students because of their early educational advantages. Myth. Myth number two. Affirmative action has not succeeded in increasing female and minority representation. Several studies have documented the importance of employee and educational gain for white women. And also, according to the report from the U.S. Labor Department, affirmative action has helped 5 million minority members and 6 million white women workers uh, move up in the workplace.
Number three, affirmative action may have been necessary 30 years ago, but the playing field is fairly level today and we don't need it. Without affirmative action, this would choke off black access to the top universities and severely restrict the progress towards racial equality. So having affirmative action doesn't hugely impact the overall student body. Like not having it would only drop the student body by like 2%. However, Without it, that greatly impacts the number of African Americans on the campus because a lot of times you have abysmal percentages, which goes back to the discrimination aspect of a lot of the admissions process and perhaps the unconscious bias against minorities in, in application reviewals. Myth number four, a large percent of white workers will lose out if African Americans continue to benefit from affirmative action. There were 2.6 million unemployed black workers in 2011, and there are 114 million employed white civilians. Even if every single unemployed black worker in the U.S. displaced one white worker, only 2% of the white workers would be affected. So if, and this is not how affirmative action worked, but if Affirmative action works in the way of the worst nightmare of that, okay, we're going to pluck every, for every black person, we're going to give them a job and pluck one white person from that job. It would affect only 2% of the white working force. And the main cause of white jobs be taken is not because of affirmative action or minorities taking the, their position. It's because of the computerization, optimization of different jobs and corporate downsizing in a lot of different fields. Another myth, myth number five, if Jewish people and Asian Americans can rapidly advance economically, African Americans should be able to do the same. There's four points to this. Um, Black American history ha has included over 250 years of slavery, 100 years of regulated and legalized discrimination, and 50 years of other. Jews and Asian population, Asian people have um, gone through a period of discrimination in America. However, their immigrants included doctors, lawyers, accountant professors, and entrepreneurs who are already um, amongst their ranks, but also who already were used to and have had access to working in Western industries. The third point that they highlight in this article is that European Jews are able to function as a part of white majority. This does not negate that perhaps within white America, they are looked at a little differently from other Euro groups, white Euro groups. However, when it comes to American society, they are able to function as part of the white majority. And finally, to expect blacks to show the same upward mobility as Jews and Asians is to deny the historical and social realities that black people face. Myth number six, you can't beat discrimination with discrimination. Job discrimination is grounded in prejudice and exclusion, whereas affirmative action is an effort to overcome the prejudice and treatment through inclusion. The logic of affirmative action is no different than the logic of treating a nutritional deficiency with vitamin supplements. For a healthy person, Huge doses of vitamin supplements may not be necessary 
or it can be even be harmful. But for a person whose system is out of balance, supplements an efficient way to restore the body's balance. The last myth that I'll cover, supportive affirmative action means support for preferential selection procedures that favor unqualified candidates over qualified white candidates. And the 2011 Code of Federal Regulation has multiple parts, but at least four points to prevent this. But again, every institution has laid out ways to prevent this from happening. And this is not something that is common or a norm. And legally, based off the Code of Federal Regulation, you can't do that. So that's an invalid argument, but an understandable fear. And so this brings me to today's perceptions that we have. I'm using a Pew Research Center study that was done and public was published May of 2016. And it's black versus white work perceptions. And you'll see that in these, not all African Americans agree on where we are today and where we hope to go. And not all white Americans agree with the myths that have been outlined before. 88% of African Americans say the country needs to continue making changes for blacks to have equal rights within, uh, with white Americans. But 43% are skeptical that that change will ever occur. 42% of African Americans believe that the country will eventually make the changes needed for blacks to have equal rights to white Americans. 8% of the black community believes that the changes have already been made. 53% of white Americans versus 88% of African Americans say that the country still has work to do for blacks to achieve equal rights with whites. And only 11% say that they doubt that change will ever come. So white Americans are more hopeful versus the 43% of African Americans who doubt that the change will come. And 40% of whites believe that the country will make changes needed for African Americans to have equal rights. Blacks are more likely than whites to say that black people are treated less fairly in the workplace. So 70% of African Americans versus 36%, 36% of white Americans feel like there's workforce racial discrimination and 66% of African Americans versus 45% believe that this prevents like access to jobs and um, a lack of job opportunities for black Americans. Lately, race relations have been in the news. White Americans, 46% say race relations are generally good. 45% saying that they are generally bad. 61% of African Americans say that race relations are bad. And 34% say that they're good. 41% of white Americans say there's too much focus on race issues. And 22% of African Americans say the same. 45% of African Americans say that we should focus on commonalities. And 44% say we should focus on differences as a way to help us improve race relations and improve the equality amongst races. White Americans based off party. 78% of white Democrats say that the country needs to make changes to achieve racial equality with whites and blacks versus 36% of white Republicans feel that way. In 2014, black Americans with degrees averaged $43,300 a year compared to white Americans with degrees earning $71,300. So 
so white America is making about 30000 more. Black American households with degrees average $82,000 a year versus white Americans who average $106,600 a year. The Great Recession in 2013, the, the median net worth of households by whites was roughly 13 times the median for black households. For white Americans, that was $144,200 versus for black Americans, that was $11,200. And this is net worth of your household. For most Americans, it's established through home equity. And so that's a really big factor. Earlier, we talked about systemic racism, institutional racism versus individual racism. For African-Americans, 48% believe that individual racism is more prevalent. 40% believe it's institutional. For white Americans, 70% believe that it's individual and 19% believe that it's institutional. And I think that this is very important because it highlights why Americans as a whole we look at our problems, um, even when we look at like Black Lives Matter and those kind of movements. Black Lives Matter movement is more saying that things are institutional. And I think that a lot of people have a problem with that because they feel like it's just a few bad cops and they're individual racist versus it's an institution that needs to be looked at. And those ideas can also be transferred to like the workplace and other things like that, obviously. 45% of African Americans say within the last 12 months, people have treated them as if they were not as smart because of their race and ethnicity. And 52% of black workers with college education say they experienced this in the last 12 months, that people have treated them as if they were not smart because of their race or um, ethnicity. In 2013, Al Jazeera America wrote an article entitled Black Workers Embody the New Low-Wage Economy. They wrote that in places like St. Louis, Detroit, New York, and Durham, North Carolina, African Americans have come to symbolize low-wage labor, a role typically filled by immigrants. This goes back to having secondary jobs, the secondary primary job theory, and African-Americans fulfilling secondary jobs and being looked at as only capable of being able to do unskilled work. Sean Thomas Bredfield wrote an interesting paper on working while black, the state of black workers organizing in the U.S. So, you know, we talked about Policies, the last policy really being in 1993, a lot of different efforts happening. But outside of that, what's going on, you know? And Sean, in his article, he, he talks about many laws in the 1970s were helped establish Americans middle class, but they were notoriously known for excluding black Americans like the GI Bill. And since the 70s, there had been attacks on the labor unions beginning with beginning at the point when black Americans and black workers became more likely to be a part of the unions than white. The criminalization of black people during the largely unsuccessful war on drugs um, and the militarization of community policing and funding public education has created even worse work conditions and views for upward mobility. So you have structural shifts, he says, and policy that have harmed the black workforce and drastically boosted black unemployment for decades. And that representation of blacks, low wage jobs um, without benefits have uh, kind of skyrocketed. And he notes that there's very little funding 
that is directed specifically for race-conscious efforts to organize black workers. Many organizations fear that being explicit about using a racial justice lens will lend negative impact and their chances of receiving grant dollars. Black organizers describe negative experiences with applying for grants and receiving feedback that's supposed to be supportive, but saying things that like founders need to be more comfortable with black people leading, or that funders need to begin to take a closer look at themselves and biases that they have towards black folks. Between 2003 and 2012, total grant making sector wide ranged from 20 to $25 billion. Foundations that support for Immigration advocacy raised about $116 million in that time. Grants focused on African-American employment issues come close to $11 million. $11 million over a nine-year period out of 20 to $25 billion. His ultimate argument is right now on funders and mainstream America really isn't ready to talk about the needs of African-American workers and enjoy, and to address the reality of it. And this is a hard conundrum when the medium income for a low-wage black worker is $15,600 a year. Now, 38.1% of black workers earn low-wage jobs versus 26% of whites. And, and remember that black workers are about, or black people, about 13, 14% of America's population. And 41.9% of black low-wage workforce is male, while 58.1% of black low-wage workforce is female. So there are more black women in low-wage jobs than there are black men, and there are more black men in executive positions and management positions than there are black women, which amongst African-Americans, especially in the conversations I've had, many times African-American males believe that women are far more, black women have a better chance in the workforce than they do, which is not true. And a lot of times you cite the fact that black women have become the largest groups to own, to get their master's education-wise because we are fed the myth that education will lead to all of our academic or all of our future economic goals and success but i know personally at least 10 black women who have their masters who were forced to take teaching positions that paid them entry level teaching salaries that were that did not compensate for the fact that they had their masters in upper level education out of the low-wage black workers, 16.7% of them reside in the Northeast, 17.2% the Midwest, 59% the South, and 7.5% in the West. What does a good job look like? And I want to use the article Algernon Austin wrote, The Importance of Good Jobs to the Social and Economic Health of Black Communities. He writes, We cannot eliminate black-white disparities in poverty rates, educational achievements, health, wealth, and marriage rate. While so many blacks 
are unemployed or earning low wages. We need to think about black jobs in three ways. The type of jobs, the relative number of those jobs, and the quality of jobs. And in the last few decades, the relative number of good jobs and the quality of jobs has not met the increase in education level that the black workforce have has now. Today, the federal minimum wage, when you adjust it for inflation, is worth more than $2 less than in 1968. Black workers are overrepresented among workers earning a minimum wage or less. More than one third of black workers do not earn enough to lift a family of four out of poverty. 1989, the average white man with only a high school diploma earned $3.76 an hour more than a black male with a high school diploma. And in 2011, the difference had grown to $4.19. So by my math, this would equal about $8,715.20 a year that a white male with a high school diploma earns than a black male with a high school diploma. Austin said a good job basically has a wage that supports a family, provides health care insurance, and a retirement account. That's it. From 1979 to 2008, the percent of black employed men with good jobs based off this standard had dropped 9.3 points. So we have not been getting better over time. And then he says that it's important to note that the black workforce education has improved. Point is that poverty leads to bad health, which also affects the pregnancies and child development, and also the hardship that the state has to help make up the difference that workforce discrimination uh, and unfair pay opportunities lend. With this episode, I want to delve into a problem that one of my events, Incognito, provides a solution to. For me, the problem is workforce discrimination, something many of us have encountered or seen, but we haven't known how to navigate it. And so I created the event series Incognito for mid to senior level African American professionals to gather around a five course farm to table dinner and discuss different aspects of workforce discrimination and how to navigate it so that we are providing an accountable community as well as solutions to improve our mental health and help us achieve the economic goals that we have. If you're interested in being a part of the group or being a business sponsor for the group, please go to our website, realevents.com. That's R-I-E-L-L-E-E-V-E-N-T-S.com. Also, make sure that you leave a comment on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Make sure that you rate us and follow Follow us, subscribe to the podcast, Relevance Podcast, so other people can enjoy the information and also improve their events. I love hearing feedback from you all, so please make sure to reach out to me on social media using at Riel underscore events. Until next time, Zai